Welcome to Fuzzbox Episode 5. This is Memories, a tribute to Keith Levine. I'm Paul Holloway. Keith Levine sadly passed away in his home in Norfolk on the 11th of November 2022, aged 65. He had been battling liver cancer. He was a hugely influential figure in the early London punk explosion. But what set him apart from many of his peers was in a scene based around a sort of DIY, knockabout, three chord ethos. Keith could really play. A gifted guitarist, he liked to experiment and push the envelope, find out how things work, try different things. In the summer of 1976, he was founding member of The Clash. However, shortly after recruiting Joe Strummer, Keith left the band. But after the Pistols imploded in 1978, John Lydon asked Keith to join him and Jar Wobble to form Public Image Limited. And this is where Keith will really be remembered. For his five years in Pill, the band released what is widely regarded as some of the most influential material of the time, including the iconic Metal Box, which is considered by many to be a post-punk classic. When I heard of Keith's death, I had a good dig around into my audio archives and I came across an in-depth interview with him I recorded back in 2013. Now, at the time, Keith was living in the United States and the recording was uh, broadcast on Fuzzbox. And that was my late night punk and ska show, uh, which was on... uh, Pure 107.8 FM, a radio station Stockport, which also uh, is no longer with us. But basically, the format is very similar to a Fuzzcast episode. It's basically uh, an in-depth interview. It's Keith's punk rock life story. Uh, So I thought I'd share it with you. Now, Keith had a lot to talk about. His fallout with John Lydon how he persuaded Joe Strummer to join The Clash, his relationship with Sid Vicious, Bernie Rhodes, Jar Wobble, teaching Viv Albertine to play guitar. It's all here. So hopefully you'll enjoy this. But it's been a terrible couple of weeks for people who love punk and music from that era. Keith's death isn't the only sad news that we've heard recently. Ten days later, on the 21st of November, Wilco Johnson also passed away. Now, Wilco was my second guest here on Fuzzcast, and I spoke to him during the 2020 lockdown. And at the time, Wilco was really struggling having to shield. He wasn't really allowed out of his house because of the very serious operation that he'd had um, to cure his uh, pancreatic cancer, which, when he was first diagnosed, he was told was terminal. We spoke on Zoom. We actually spoke for over three and a half hours. Uh, We stopped to make a couple of brews. (laughs) Wilco uh, rolled up a couple of times and had a smoke. It was very relaxed. It was really nice to talk to him. But I could tell he was really suffering in lockdown. Um, You can listen to the best bits of our conversation on the second episode of Fuzzcast, The Old City Axe Man. 
it's glad to know though that Wilco after lockdown did actually get back on the road and play some gigs again with his band Norman and Dylan before he died because it was obvious that it was a bit of a dark period when I spoke to him but it was a real pleasure to just have a few hours of his time in the middle of that but unfortunately the sad news didn't finish there on the 6th of December Jet Black passed away aged 84 Drummer with the Stranglers, uh, due to his ill health, he played his last gig with the band in 2015. But that was after playing 41 years with J.J. Bunnell and 40 with Dave Greenfield. Real name Brian Duffy, Jet Black was 10 years older than the rest of the band and he played drums in jazz clubs and had successful business careers running an off-licence, home brewing, ice cream uh, van businesses and had a failed marriage under his belt all before he met Hugh Cornwall and formed the Stranglers back in 1974. Um, He was sort of the glue that held the band together. He was actually taking oxygen when he was still playing with the band. He had uh, terrible um, uh, problems with breathing, even back then. Really, they had to kick in and fighting. He he really wanted to play, but eventually announced he was retiring three years after his last gig in uh, 2018. Uh, His health had had beaten him to it. Uh, But Jet Black, a real important figure in the Stranglers, a momentous band. I saw them play a gig um, just after lockdown. Uh, Of course, uh, Dave Greenfield, the keyboard player, had died uh, COVID-related um, during the lockdown. Uh, and the rearranged gig, um, JJ and Buzz Warren, who's now been with the band 20 years and feels like part of the furniture, the performance they put on was absolutely awesome. I mean, the Stranglers have a fantastic band catalogue anyway, uh, but you've also got to deliver it. And, uh, um, I mean, my regards to both JJ Uh, and obviously to Baz as well. JJ, who of course was also a flatmate with Wilco Johnson, so some very sad news over the last couple of weeks. And then, as if it couldn't get any worse, on the 18th of December, the news uh, broke that Terry Hall had died. The specials frontman, he was something special. Uh, Jerry Dammers recruited all the best musicians from the Coventry scene to join the specials. And he saw Terry playing in a very young band called The Squat and knew straight away that he needed to have him for his band. Um, Charismatic, a teen heartthrob, but dry, sullen, angry, articulate, bored, energetic, sarcastic. All of those things. And often at the same time. Terry Hall was something special. There's not many people like that. If you go and listen to Friday Night, Saturday Morning, it's the B-side of Ghost Town. It's a perfect demonstration of Terry's wry sense of humour and insightful social commentary. And it's such a shame in the way that uh, when Jerry was writing Ghost Town, Linville was writing Why, Terry was writing Friday Night, Saturday Morning, the band imploded at that point when there was obviously so much talent in that band. I was only nine uh, when the special split up the first time. Uh, Although the first albums I bought with my own money uh, was uh, The Specials, Madness, Bad Manners, Two-Tone got me big style when I was just at school. But as I became a little bit older and started to 
listen more and form opinions on the world, I realised, not just musically, lyrically, what an important band the specials were to me and to so many other people as well. When the specials reformed and I saw the six of them without Jerry playing at the Manchester Apollo, it was the most exciting and best gig I have ever seen in my life. And although I've seen them various times since then, thought of never being able to see uh, Terry Hall front up the specials again it fills me with enormous sadness, despite the fact the human loss of losing another hero. Terry Hall was only 63 and he died from pancreatic cancer, which is a terrible disease uh, with a very low survival rate. Wilco Johnson beat the odds to beat it back in 2013, but unfortunately, Terry, like my own dad, was not so lucky. Rest in peace, Wilco, Jet Black, Terry and Keith. Enjoy this. This is Fastcast Episode 5, Memories, a tribute to Keith Levine. This is Fuzzbox, punk, ska and new wave. Anarchy and SK. Public Image Limited. It's Pure 107.8 FM. This is Fuzzbox Anarchy in SK. And tonight, very special guest on the show, Keith Levine, guitar genius, in fact, genius of any instrument he takes his hand to, and of course, founding member of Pill, and also, some people might not know, The Clash as well. Good evening, Keith. Good evening. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much for joining us on Fuzzbox uh, tonight. Uh, and I also uh, do need to thank uh, John in Miami, who on Twitter badgered the two of us into uh, to talking. So uh, thanks. Yeah, I think he, I think he set us up, didn't he? Really, you know. He did, like a bit of matchmaker. <laughs> thanks for that, John. Uh, right, I tell you what, I'd like to do, Keith. I'd like to start right at the uh, the very beginning. You were involved in the uh, the music scene at a very young age. You, you roadied for Yes, didn't you? That's correct. When I was about fifteen, I was pretending I was sixteen, but yeah, I did. I roadied on the um, Tales from Topographic Ocean tour, which is just after the Close to the Edge stuff, and. I was a bit of a yes freak, too. So I was living the dream. And uh, I'm really interested at that sort of time because it was a, a very exciting time in London with the sort of what was to become the punk movement in terms of the relationships and how everything uh, set up. Uh, so you've been rodeoing for a while. You're moving in those circles. Uh, but uh, Bernie Rhodes, um, he sort of set up initial rehearsals for you with Mick Jones and with Paul uh, Simeon uh, to form The Clash. He wanted an answer to the pistols. How did that all come about? Uh, yeah, you know, Bernard and Malcolm was a sort of item artistically. And, uh, you know, Malcolm had the sex pistols. Malcolm went away for a couple of weeks and Bernard kind of uh, mentored the pistols. And there was immense progress um, Malcolm came back, and, you know, Mick Jones was on the scene with London SS, what have you. I, I was just discovering West London. I'd m met Mick. You know, he was introduced to me as Rock and Roll Mick, and 
you know, you know, sort of fell in love on sight at the time, you know, um, best discovery we've both ever made. You know, really happy with each other. All we knew we wanted to do was form a band. Next thing was I was introduced to Bernard Rose, one of the most influential people in my life, you know. Um, I've got immense respect for the man. And, uh, yeah, we were putting this band together. And, yeah, Bernard was definitely looking for an alternative to the Pistols. Um, you know, it wasn't necessarily competition, but he wanted an alternative. He, he could see he could see the scene. He used to say to us, you guys are on the, the hippest scene in London. You know, and that meant a lot to us at the time because we just wanted to be in a band. It was, you know, um, yeah, everyone was sick of Pink Floyd and Yes and all this kind of stuff. It was too good. It was too um, geeky kind of thing. And we were just looking for that that kind of sensationalist buzz, you know. Raw but at the energy. Same time, well, I guess or anything, you know. I mean, we at the same time, we were into music big time. I mean... You know, Mick had an immense album collection. You know, I had a lot of music under my belt in terms of having a couple of sisters that were older than me. So I, was, I knew about stuff that I wouldn't otherwise know about, you know? Mm. So, yeah. I suppose the, the Pistols, although the Pistols were uh, around for as long as The Clash, you think about The the Clash, both uh, Mick and Joe, that their musical tastes, they had that sort of interest in world music, their interest in reggae and, and things that, that took The Clash a step further after The Pistols had disintegrated. Yeah, more than likely, yeah. Yeah, I, I guess that's right. You wouldn't see... You know, you wouldn't be expecting dub versions of any Pistols number, whereas, like, yeah, The Clash could take that on. They could, that could be done. That was even being done when I was in the band. You know, there was a big awareness of that. And, yeah, it was bound to come about. Now, you were actually key in persuading Joe Strummer to uh, to join The Clash because he was, he was um, fronting up a band called The 101ers, wasn't he? Yeah. I mean, there were a lot of bands on the scene. Um, and of all the bands, The 101ers were the most exciting and the key reason was because of Joe Strummer and he came on like uh, a cross between Elvis and Buddy Holly and something original he, he definitely had a, a punk element to him yeah and uh, yeah he, yeah. so they were sort of the most exciting band around because of Joe and me and Bernard pillaged him from a gig you know we told him about this new band it wasn't called The Clash yet and you know I, I got him over to this Davis Road squat and kind of yeah, stood in front of him in a very, very small room with egg boxes in it, playing guitar to him, playing his tunes to him and tunes I was making up and kind of romanced him into it. And sort of at the end of that thing, because he wasn't going to do it, he didn't, you know, he didn't want to leave his mates, you know, there was a, a loyalty thing there. And in the end he went, oh, I'll do it, I'll do it, I, I can't not do it. And so, yeah, we got Joe. How'd you get on yeah. with Joe? Because you weren't in the band too long before you then moved on yourself. No, I, I, got, I knew Joe anyway, you know, I, I, I got on great with Joe, I, I got on really good with Joe. I've got to say, um, because uh, the band moved on, and a big emotional thing when you're a kid and, and you're in the band at that time, you know, um, yeah, it didn't help relations. I mean, I wasn't getting on with Mick Jones too well, who I got on with immensely well at first, um, which didn't help things. But really, you know, the decision about not being in The Clash was simply, you know, The Clash were better off without me. I mean, I, it wasn't, as you can tell from Pill, it, was it wasn't my kind of band. Mm. And uh, they couldn't take on those kind of ideas anyway. And so, you know, it, it, it wasn't, it, it was an amicable sort of um, dissolution, you know. Um, and I, I got on with Joe great. I, I remember hanging out with Joe a lot afterwards. Mm. You know? yeah. yeah. What do you think when you listen back to the, the, uh, the Clash's uh, back catalogue uh, now? And, and how do you feel to have been part of that when it first crystallised? 
Well, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I'm, you know, it's very exciting scene and everything. I'm glad I was part of it, but I've never listened to Clash Record in my life. I've really? never put a Clash Record on. <laughs> I never played the first album. Um, it's not because I hate them. It's just like, you know, say I had nothing to do with the band, I still wouldn't have listened to a Clash album. That's why I'm not in the Clash, you know. That's why I wasn't in it, because yeah. in the end, it was a great, very exciting, great band and everything, but just certainly not my cup of tea, you know, and it's just the way it worked out. I read that you um, uh, made acquaintances with uh, with Sid Vicious, who of course uh, yeah, was mates uh, with uh, John Lydon and also uh, uh, with Jar Wobble from their sixth form college. You actually met him by chance on the on the tube. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, you know, at the same time I was doing this stuff with the Clash and everything, I, I was meeting Sid, you know, and um, yeah, you know, I you know I never even knew John went to art college or, or Wobble went to art college or, or Sid. I knew he knew Leiden because I'd, you know, been around to a few squats and Leiden was there and what have you. And, you know, obviously I knew about the pistols. So, it, you know, uh, it must have been when, already when the pistols had, had it's like 75, 76, you know. And I guess the pistols had done a few gigs by then. And, yeah, um, yeah, Sid was a good friend of mine. We went around a lot here. We had squats together and stuff. Now, there's, uh, there's one night when you were, were gigging with The Clash in a, a pub called Black Swan, and uh, you had a bit yeah. of a, a chinwag uh, with, uh, with John Lydon. That's when it was first sort of muted that the two of you might work together. Well, that was quite a, a pivotal night looking back, yeah? Well, yeah, who, who would have thought? You know, th- that's why uh, you have to say you never know unless you try. Now, I knew I wasn't going to be in The Clash anymore, and I wasn't getting on too well with the band, so I'm sort of there on my own, and I'm seeing John sitting down the end of this hallway, the lucky duck, just sitting on a chair on his own, looking very, very like Johnny Rotten. He was a very exciting guy then, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I knew him anyway, okay, you know, aside from these bands, because all these people meet, you know, behind stage and what have you, but, I mean, I knew him anyway from, from hanging out, and, and because of Sid, like you mentioned, and... You know, I went up to him and I said, you know, these lot ate me and you don't look too happy and he, he kind of, you know, gave me some kind of expression. <laughs> and I said, look, I know it's never going to happen, but I'm not going to be in this band anymore after the roundhouse. Um, you and me should do something together. And, and he just gave me that look and just said, yeah, no, it's so on. And who knew that within six months, you know, all these things were going to happen, that Sid would be in the pistols and then, you know, then it would all split up. So, yeah. Right, yeah, we'll, come so that, we'll come to that in a second. I, I, I'm in really okay, intrigued yeah. with these sort of uh, stories about the scene uh, and, and how it all happened there. It must have been such an exciting time to be involved in that. But before we uh, yeah. get into the details of the flowers of romance and everything else that happened with Sid, uh, I'm going to play the, the one track that you wrote that was actually uh, on an album for The Clash. And, oh, uh, my God. <laughs> this is what's my I name. I wrote that, I tell you what, I wrote that in this very sound check at the Mucky Duck. That's where I wrote What's My Name. You wrote that the same night you uh, you first uh, suggested working with Johnny. Yeah. Here it is. This is of The Clash's first album, What's My Name, written by Keith. It's Pure 107.8 FM, it's Fuzzbox, Anarchy and SK tonight. Very uh, privileged to have Keith Levine with us. Uh, of course, most people will know him as being the guitar player and, well, multi-musician. Uh, uh, he played absolutely everything with uh, with Pill in their most creative years. Uh, we've already talked about his uh, his brief time with The, the Clash 
Um, and uh, and th- th- I want to talk to you about the, your time with the Flowers of Romance. They're kind of, they're a bit like punk folklore, a little bit like the Lesser Free Hall uh, Pistols gig up here at Manchester that sort of oh, then... Well <laughs> were you there? <laughs> Any, I wish, yeah. Anybody who was anybody uh, in the Manchester scene afterwards was supposedly there that night. But the Flowers of no, Romance... I was, there, I, was there, I was in the toilets. I was there. Okay, I, was I, I didn't even need to see the band. No, no, I wasn't there. I, I just saw a, vi- a video of that the other night. Um, you know, Tony Wilson, and yeah, amazing gig. Yeah, that, the gig that changed the world. It's it's interesting to know the number of people who claim who were there, and the number of people who are actually in. I don't know if they can physically. I know Mick Hucknall was, you know, claiming that because uh, he was with the uh, Frantic Elevators then, wasn't he? He was supposed to be there. That's right. Yeah. Morrissey. He's, he's New Order when they were Warsaw, you know, the the, the whole lot. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but I want to talk it was about... empty. You yeah. know, the gig was empty. Yeah. That's what's so funny. We were about 24 people there, and everyone there, it kind of really counted. There was one guy called John the Postman was there. <laughs> you know, but I mean, everyone else turned into a really, really well-known band. Now, uh, the Flowers of Romance were a little bit like that because there's so many connections of people who, who played with the band. It was really sort of yourself and Sid... Uh, but also Vivian yeah. Palwali from the Slits, and what happened there? Because Sid got yeah. poached, didn't he, yeah. by the Pistols? I was never in a rehearsal room with Vivian Albertine or Steve. I mean, mm. you know, you want you don't want to know about Flowers of Romance. It was me, Sid, a guy called Steve on bass. There was somebody drumming. I can't remember who it was. I'm sorry if I'm upsetting somebody out there, but there you go. Um, I don't remember. I'm, I got Palmoli in the Slits. I taught Vivian Albertine guitar for the Slits. And I remember getting with Nora and sort of saying, you've got to manage this band and buy Tom Iver a drum kit, you know? Nora was on that scene, you know I mean? We'd go around Nora's place a lot, and Harry would be playing all these uh, pre-release reggae records and sort of becoming a raster somehow, a German raster. I don't know how she pulled that off, but, you know, but, like, when it comes to Flowers of Romance, um, no, it was a band with me, me and Sid and this guy Steve on, on bass, who was great, wore a black leather jacket, can't remember the drummer, and there was a little period where, um, for some reason, I was out of the band. You know, like, time so long and so quick. I mean, this is probably about six weeks. It seemed like two years, but I wasn't in the band. I was replaced by Vivian Albertine, the person I was teaching guitar at the time, and um, some guy called Steve, who also lived in the Davis Road squat, you know, my two friends. And, like, uh, after a while, she changed his senses, and they were out, and I was back in. And then... Said, you know, um, Malcolm wanted him for the pistols, and my opinion was you you have to do it. It has to be done. Yeah. You know, so you know, I don't remember Marco. I don't remember Tom Olive being in, in Flowers. Is that one of those things though? It's become one of those because you never actually played a gig, did you? Nah. No, we didn't. <laughs> so it's turned into one of those sort of rock <laughs> myths. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, yeah, I guess it's a myth. I mean, there, there's truth. There's truth in all myths, aren't there? I was talking to um, to Jar Wobble recently when he came in to see us, um, and he was talking to me about the sadness he has when he looks back at, uh, at Sid, and and also about his his mum and about the uh, the background that Sid had come from. And his mum had a very serious habit when he was uh, a young age. What's your feeling looking back at uh, what happened to Sid and his downfall and and his death and and everything that happened with Nancy? How do you feel about that? Because uh, you knew him; he was one of your. I could kill a, a few birds with this with one stone. Um, you know, um, there was a kind of infestation on the punk rock scene when all these people came over, like the Heartbreakers, and you, you know these people that followed them, like Nancy and 
all this kind of stuff. It really, really infected some really very cool London punks that were really into a bright, cool scene, and a very, very sordid element came into the situation. And when I, I remember Sid's mum, she was a real laugh and everything. I mean, it's neither here nor there, you know, what she may have been into. You know, Sid was fine, everyone was fine, everyone knew what they were doing. Well, when you saw what, what happened to Sid and everything, I mean, you knew him. You know, he's, he's become a little bit of a, an urban myth, if you like, hasn't he? He's become an anti-hero in many people's eyes, and not many people really know, or does anybody know, really what happened to Nancy and, and, and what even happened to, to, to Sid in those dark nights uh, uh, when he, uh, you know, did he OD, did he, you know, all those sort of things. I mean, you knew the man. It, uh, this must have, he was one of your mates. It, you, it must have affected you in a, a very different way. Well, I've got to say, when I heard Sid had died, you know, I, I found this way of just blocking it. I mean, I knew I couldn't do anything about it, and I, I, I have to say, I just thought, you know, if he hadn't been involved with Nancy, it probably wouldn't have happened. I'm pretty convinced that he had nothing to do with murdering her, mm. you know. Um, but, yeah, like you say, nobody really knows, do they? You know, um, I wouldn't recommend anybody taking you know, the latter days Sid Vicious on as a big hero and go around cutting yourself and doing really stupid things because um, it's just really dumb, you know. But, I mean, Sid wasn't the happiest person probably in, in those last days. You know, so, yeah, I'm kind of with Wobble on that. I, it, it is. It's, it saddens me. You know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Sometimes it does kill you, you know. Mm. Did you feel when you're know, on the scene, I mean, the things that happened to, to Sid, but also so many other people, I mean, you had uh, periods where you were battling with your demons. Was there ever a, a, a you know, was there a wake-up call at some point, or did, how did that make you feel about, you know, the, the well, drugs there, that were on the scene? There's a time that comes where, you know, something that used to be fun isn't fun. It becomes a really serious thing, and, like, uh, you, you know... So yeah, you get you get a wake up call every day, and you have to decide. Well, you know, I can either go on one way, and it's a one way ticket, and you know where it's going, or I can go on another way, and you know, life continues, and and you can continue being creative and being yourself and feeling like a human being, and you know, these choices come along to anyone in any walks of life. Um, but I'm sure I, I don't know how old you are, man, but I'm sure you remember being a kid, and. You know, no one holds a gun to your head to have this kind of fun. Mm. But when it stops being fun, you've got to start making, you know, serious choices. And has to be done, you know. No one, no one can get away with anything, you know. Well, let's talk about how uh, you uh, you did harness those creative energy. I want to get on to, to Pill. I want to talk about Metal Box in particular. Uh, but let's have a track first. Uh, this is from Metal Box. Okay. It's Memories. It's Pure on a 7.8 FM and Keith Levine is our special guest tonight. We're talking about Pill and uh, we've just heard memories from, of course, the classic album, uh, Metal Box. Uh, did you feel when you were working on the, that album and uh, when you uh, first worked on, the, on the, uh, the first issue as well with Pill, did it feel like you had freedom to experiment in this new band with John? 
we had to, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, John joining the band and calling himself Leiden, that, that was a big deal. Uh, you know, I've got immense respect for him doing that. And, um, he, you know, he definitely stepped up to the plate with that. With first issue, we wrote it really quickly. Um, and I didn't really realize it at the time. You know, I realized a lot of this in retrospect. But, um, yeah, we were adopting this way of working, this experimental way where we were recording what we were experimenting with at the time. I mean, I, you know, I, I wasn't as confident as I am now then. Okay, but, um, you know, there's a certain process we um, we adopted which worked, which was pretty much making stuff up to tape, you know. Um, and, and uh, you know, um, it, it was, yeah, we, we were definitely at loggerheads with engineers and producers and kicking producers out and having arguments with record companies about studio time, spending a lot of time to get not too much done, but we were learning so much, you know. Um, the impression I get, there was a big thing that you put across at the time, that you weren't a band, you were a company, and it felt like um, it was a, a concept more than anything else. I mean, look at the packaging on Metal Box and the way that you wanted to get involved in, in other areas of, of the art form. Yeah. That was something which you were, you were pushing the boundaries, not just musically, but in terms of what the product was and, and what the, the entity of Pill meant. Yeah, it, um, I, I think at the time we, we were spending a lot of money on studio time and you know, it, we were very into being a company. And we were doing media, R&D, you know. I, I wasn't into just hiring studio time, you know, for a cut and dry one idea. I just thought, right, we've got a studio. This is a road. I mean, you want to see these places. I mean, it, it's not such a big deal now. But then, you know, it was like getting on the Starship Enterprise. It was amazing. And, like, uh, my thing was, you know, hey, we can do more than one thing here. We can do seven or eight things here. Not tunes, but things. Find out stuff. And, and we did. And we didn't, and maybe Metalbox is a great reflection of that, because apparently it's a gift that keeps on giving. Um, you know, there's some simplistic stuff on there that was designed that way, and there's some experimental stuff that it's turned out to be the raw material for a lot of bands. And, and that's a good thing. It's not, you know, I'm not bothered about that. I think it's good. And, um, you know, I know some of these corporate ideas didn't go so far, but a lot of them were dropped anyway, because, you know, you, you have your outlook changes as you mature, as you get older, you know? Mm. I suppose it's one of those things that uh, there's the opportunity for you and, and Wobble that I get the impression that you guys, you're experimenting with not just studio, with guitars, you're getting into synths, there's big dirty bass lines. And then the added ingredient, ingredient for me that makes that music uh, uh, sort of something different and completely different to anything before is that John's sort of sneering cynicism which is sort of just like the sort of icing on the cake that makes it makes the, it all come together. It, 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 that for me, as as a fan, is, is is what makes it different to anything that went before. Yeah, I mean, um, artistically, musically, you know, John was hit to the fact that um, he could be Johnny Rotten if he wanted to, and we wanted him to be the best Johnny Rotten he could be if he was going to do that. And he was also he was really, I mean, John was really into me. Uh, and he, he understood that I, I was trying to place him across the... I was trying not to put him up front as the lead singer, but as another element, as, a, as an instrument. And, and he was into that. And John got into playing a lot of instruments, much like toys, but, I mean, John did the, uh, the sax solo on um, Flowers of Romance, the single, and he's responsible for a lot of sounds on there, a lot of ambient sounds, you know. Um, 
sometimes because he was just being awkward and annoying, but other times because um, he realised it, 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 it was part of the package, that he had that, that space. That's what he liked about Pill. That's what he liked about the expansion from the Pistols to Pill was, yeah, he had to experiment. He wasn't a band. He was, you know, that, that's, this is what it was at the start. You know, we were, we were in control. It wasn't so much about control. It, it just meant, you know, we made the hits. We told the DJs what to play. You know, we created our options. We weren't told what to do by record companies. That's what was so important when we were kids, you know. I mean, it's transparent now. I mean, mm. it's totally transparent by the times and the internet and the fact that it's normally a curse when you get a record deal these days, isn't it? Mm. So, um, you know, it, everything's come, come round to that. Well, let's really. have a listen to I mean, another classic track off that album, shall we? Uh, this is uh, a Death Disco. Uh, which, uh, I mean, this is something which you wobble and put sort of the, uh, you put it together and then John came in and, and brought the um, uh, the lyrics and, and, and the stuff about his mum uh, that, that he put in that piece. Is that the way it worked? Yeah, you, you pretty much got it right. I remember we had this rehearsal. This wasn't even in a studio. We knew we were going to be in the studio and we were just trying to keep the band going. Um, first issue was done and we did this rehearsal I swear to God, this came, we nailed this in one. You know, Wobble started playing this bass line. I gave Dudansky this look, which meant play 4-4 four, four on this. He played on it, and I, I didn't even know. I started playing Swan Lake. I mean, I'm not playing it correctly, mm. but I knew in my head, I kind of want to do Swan Lake over this, and I did. And, uh, yeah, I think John always had that scene it in your eyes thing, and I always had that weird harmonic rundown. Um... And then, yeah, you know, I mean, you know, as events passed, his, his mum died. You know, his mum wasn't well then. You mm. know, so he, he, had, he had some stuff. He, he was working out in the studio, he had the rehearsal studio. And, yeah, when we went in to do Metal Box, it was a no-brainer. You know, we set up the instruments and what have you, started getting some sound, set up the desk, and sort of looked at each other, you know, at some point, and, and just said, well, we, we have to do that one. And, you know, we did a good few versions of it as well, you mm. know. So, yeah, um, that's how it worked. Well, let's have a listen. This is uh, Death Disco or Swan Late, whichever you prefer to call it, uh, from Metal Box. It's Fuzzbox, Bjorn at 7.8 FM, and Keith Levine is uh, joining me on the uh, the phone from the States tonight uh, to talk about uh, Peel and other things. Uh, we want to talk a little bit about uh, after uh, Jar Wobble moved on. How did that change the dynamics in the band? Well, it, it didn't too much at first. I didn't even know he wasn't in the band. I knew there'd been arguments, but again, you've got your corporate thing here. You know, I mean, there'd been arguments between Wobble and the accountant, Dave Crow, and... I knew John and him were at loggerheads, but, you know, <laughs> that, that had happened before, too, you know, so um, I wasn't too bothered. Um, I, I knew he had issues about certain things, you know, Wobble had certain issues about certain things, but in a nutshell, I didn't know he was in the band, so it wasn't until we were recording this tune called Go Back, and I said, look, get Wobble, all right, we're third bass on this, and I'll play guitar at the same time, and then we, and, and then we do the rest. So, no, we get Wobble, I'll do the drums, and then... I'll put the guitar over it with John, and they're going, well, Keith Wobble's not in the band. So, um, that you was know, how you that were told. <laughs> yeah, so the way we resolved that was we didn't put bass on a lot of things. So, what's Pill like without bass? This is Pill now. What's it like now? And um, there were certain tracks, Banging the Door, what have you, where we used Atkins and, you know, put a conventional bass line on it. Um, 
what have you. So there were three tracks. They were, I won't say they were sort of safety tracks, but I, I felt compelled we had to have tracks, you know, with bass and properly played drums, yeah? Mm. And then other tracks where, you know, there was more latitude because that's what Phil was about, you know? Kind of taking things on as it came, you know? I just wanted to be us at the time. This is what's happened. I, I wasn't happy about what we're not being in the band, but what are you going to do? Yeah. You know? So at that sort of time, uh, it wasn't long after you uh, you relocated and you were sort of more based out of New York, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah, that sort of happened, I guess, between Flowers and uh, the next wonderful experience called Commercial Zone, yeah. I mean, in that period as well, um, Jeanette Lee's role in the, the band developed. And I know that um, Jar Wobble wasn't he, he was sort of questioning what she, she was doing there. Uh, was that uh, something which, once, um, once Wobble was out of the way, uh, Jeanette sort of uh, started to take more centre stage in terms of her role and what she was doing within the band? Well, put it this way, I mean, once Wobble was out of the way, I'm sure Jeanette felt a lot more comfortable, but when it comes to taking centre stage, tell me where the stage was, because I never I never heard or saw a peep out of her. I mean, I have to say, on that one, you know, Wobble was right from mm. the very beginning. Um, you know, um, <laughs> the intention of the corporation was, uh, you know, we, we wanted people that didn't play musical instruments, and Jeanette Lee was in on video and on, on, on writing and what have you. Um, but, you know, really, I mean, if I was you, I'd ask Businesswoman of the Year herself, what the hell did she do in pill? Because I've yet to find out, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. We're moving on to Flowers and Romance, and then we're going to talk about uh, uh, yourself and, uh, and and the split from uh, from Pearl. But let's hear the uh, the track itself, shall we? This is uh, Flowers of Romance. It's Bjorn at 7.8 FM, Anarchy and SK, it's Fuzzbox. I'm Paul Holloway talking to Keith Levine tonight. Uh, so uh, we're talking uh, now getting to the stage. Um, uh, very graciously, you've talked us back through uh, your career and uh, the split from Pill. It was obviously uh, uh, very uh, messy uh, and it happened just on the eve of the, uh, uh, the tour out to uh, Japan. Uh, now, you'd released the uh, Commercial Zone album, which is a lot of the material that is in the This Is What You Want album that was released later. Um, what happened with you and John and, and the whole situation there? It obviously broke down uh, sort of creatively. What happened? Well, OK, we had a situation. When we were in England and what have you, you know, uh, obviously we're getting advances. We're putting studio time. We're doing the best we can. We're making these records, sir. Yeah? Um, Something happened. I ended up in New York for a bit. Uh, John had been going back and forth to New York. One way or another, we ended up relocating there. It was it was a good idea. And uh, next thing we knew, um, John's got this movie to make. This order of death movie, yeah, with Harvey Keitel. But I've got to say, things were a bit shaky anyway. Um, and I'm I'm like great. Problem was we were in New York and Virgin, who were expecting an advance from. Okay, and let's face it, you, you know, you've got between 6 and 11 people to take care of, you've got to get studio time, you can say, well, you know what, because you're not in English territory, we don't have to give you the advance. So naturally, I said, well, no, you don't have to, but just why don't you anyway? And they said, well, we're not going to, and that was really helpful. So that led to us having to start thinking outside the box. That coincided with me doing the Ritz Riot thing. 
um, which really actually kind of saved us doing about 27 gigs, you know, or maybe 39 gigs, who knows? Um, that helped a lot. Uh, and so John's off doing this, this uh, movie, and I'm, I'm trying to sort of hold this together. We've got Martin Atkins in the band with Pete Jones for more convenience than anything else because he knows the tunes. He wants to be in the band, and uh, we needed to do gigs, and naturally I've extended that into the studio situation. And in a way, it was me trying to give Martin Atkins yet another chance to, to kind of step up to the plate properly and be part of Pill. Uh, you know, he always had a question mark over his head, not because of his ability, but just because of, the, let's just say, the way he was, right? Anyway, um, so John's making this movie. I, I, I'm getting ad hoc studio time at Parksmouth Studios, and I'm putting commercials on together. And actually, it's going really well, and I made the slab, and I'm hoping to get the soundtrack for Order of Death, this movie John's making. And in the meantime, I'm communicating with John and Jeanette. I'm not seeing Jeanette. This is when Jeanette just kind of went, disappeared, but... I mean, she didn't disappear because she was never there. So, but that was when she officially disappeared. So there's one gone, right? You got yeah. John in Italy, and you got me in the studio, and you got Martin Atkins on a scene in and out. Maybe I can't even remember. But I know when John, I remember playing a few things to John over the phone, and him going, "Oh, it sounds like a load of old blues geezers." And I said, "You make that sound like a bad thing, you know." And I don't know if it was a bad thing or a good thing, but he came back. And I remember Pete Jones and Martin being in the studio for a few things. You know, Miller High Life came together with uh, Pete Jones and Martin Atkins and me producing. And, uh, you know, whatever, Bad Night, really. I played everything on it. Um, loads of tracks. Louis Part 1, Louis Part 2, I played everything on it. Obviously, John did the vocal on it. Um, Martin played on something. I think, no, actually, I think Martin played on Bad Night. Um, but I'm, I remember taking the drums off the slab because I wanted it to be orchestral. So anyway, we're doing This Is Not A Love Song, which we put a lot of work into. And uh, I don't know what happened. There'd been some resolution between me and John, and um, I, I really needed a night off. I'd, I'd worked really hard. I mean, I was the one that had really put like seven-eighths of the time into all this. And yeah. I was just like, look, this is so easy. All you got to do is put the tape on and press play, okay, and you've got a mix. Anyway, they, they went and did this big, big dub mix. So all I did was, I was like, whatever, okay, we've got another mix. I, I had to go in one more night and this mix is the way you know it, you know, just the, the normal, straightforward commercial version. And, like, while I was doing that, Martin Atkins was pacing up and down. John happened to have gone to L.A., and that's when the big split happened. And, you know, as soon as Martin could get John on the phone, I had John talking to me saying, get out of my studio, I can't believe you're in there remixing it. And I'm like, whatever, whatever. I waited for these Japanese guys to turn up gave them both mixes, and then told them to f*** off. A lot of them, I just done, I was just done with it. And, you know, Martin got his way, he could marry John, and, you know, I could be out of this situation. Obviously, I've been thinking about it. Pete Jones had left by then anyway, you know. So, yeah, it was messy, it was painful, it was horrible, and I'd arranged 13 tickets for Japan and a number of gigs, and, you know, we had the money in the bank, I left it with them, you know, and... That's how much I wanted to be out, you know. I mean, I, mm. you know, I blew off a Japanese, not so much tour, just a succession of gigs, you know. It was, yeah. You know, anyone would have wanted to do that, and I really wanted to do it, and I couldn't, and I wanted them to have a hard time, and I wanted them to have trouble replacing me, and from what I can tell, they did, and there was a story. Have you spoken with John or, or buried the hatchet since? I tried to bury the hatchet. Um, everyone, I, I can't remember how long it was, after that, but it wasn't very long. It was sort of within a year. Everyone was sort of in L.A. And um, 
I, I remember knowing how to get in contact with John. I contacted him three times, three separate occasions, very close together. You know, we should meet, we should meet, and he agreed. And three times he let me down after that, and I just that was it. I just haven't, and I've never said a word to him since. He's never, he's never contacted me when he's tried to do these awful pill reformation. It's not that I would have done anything about it anyway, mm. but I'm just saying, yeah, I've never contacted him. He's never contacted me. Yeah. Uh, Wobble told me that he, he got in touch when he was reforming Pill, but um, what he was offering wasn't something that interested yeah. him. But you never got the phone call. Yeah. Never got the call. No, not me. Yeah. No, you know, I mean, John knows better. John knows me well enough. I mean, you know, I, I don't know what John Lydon turned into, but, you know, I mean, he, he knows me well enough to know not to bother, possibly. You know, I don't know what he thinks he, he he's doing. You know, when he reformed the Sex Pistols, I thought... He broke the last rule of punk rock anyway, and that was before he started doing these awful pill debacles, you know? Yeah. And it, Let's not it, mention it, the butter ads. Have you seen the butter ads huh? living over in the... Have you seen his butter ads? Are you living in the States? I've seen... Uh, yeah, I, I, was, I was residing in England when the butter ads came out. Yeah, I've seen them. Well, they said about you that know. better. I tell you what, let's yeah. uh, <laughs> draw a veil over that and let's uh, have listened to uh, This Is Not A Love Song. This is not a love song. It's Pure One Seven Point Eight FM. I'm Paul Holloway. Keith Levine is with me. Uh, we've talked about Peel in some detail. We've talked about the uh, the messy split. Uh, but let's talk about uh, what you got up to since you spent an awful lot of time in uh, in the states, both in the east and the west coast. You've worked with uh, Flea from the Chili Peppers. You've worked in the, the Pig Face uh, Project as well. Uh, so you've been keeping yourself busy over the uh, into the the years since. Well, I mean, to be quite honest, my my primary thing for a number of years wasn't music but yeah I managed to do an album called Violent Opposition and, and a few releases I'm on tons of records um, some of them uncredited a lot of them dub syndicate I did a lot of stuff with Adrian Sherwood um, very difficult times uh, I, you know I, ch- I choose to I chose to um, you know look into um, technology and computers and I learned a lot about computing I got into 3D graphics and stuff like that um, I got my muse back when I just realised um, you know, money wasn't that important, and I was so used to not making it by then anyway, you know, not even being able to make a living, and I just thought, you know, I do this, you know, I can't, I've done, I've had jobs in desktop publishing, I've done all sorts of things, you know, things I don't even want to mention, and, and like, uh, I, I just suddenly realized, you know, you know what's really important, all we need is love, and, you know, music's really important look how important it is to me look how important it is to these people these people that contact me about the pill stuff you know uh, it, it, it was and it, it was the thing that came naturally to me so I started rekindling all this in about 2008 2009 and I started practicing seriously again and I've got to tell you it was great you know I got this thing back that I never had since the clash even I mean, I mean obviously you, you got a runoff from the first time around with pill but, you know, I got this magic back that I just felt like a kid. I felt like a teenager again. I didn't care. And that's kind of where I'm at now, really. And, and you know, now I'm releasing stuff off it. I've got a lot of stuff to release. I've just done Search for Absolute Zero. Uh, I'm glad I did some stuff with it, with John, you know, with Wobble. And um, um, so, 
So you feel you've got, you, you've got your mojo back, yeah? It's, it's one of those things, I suppose, when it stops being something, because music is such a... It, it, it's, it's linked to your soul and where you are. When it stops becoming fun, that, that's when you've got a problem. You've, you've had a hiatus, it's back. Yeah, well, it's much more, it's much more than fun to me. I mean, fun is a very, very important element of it, you know? But, yeah, it's a much more spiritual thing with me. Um, it's a very serious thing, you know? But the thing is, is uh, it's not about money. It's not about record companies. You know, I, it's a real shame. I just think record companies really screwed music. I think money really screwed music. And I think people's idea of making it is uh, not every person. I'm just saying just a general thing. You know, people, when you say, I'm in music, they go, oh, you know, what band do you know? I bet that makes loads of money. And it's, you know, that's just, that's the last thing. And to just have that thing of just wanting to be in it and not caring and wanting to do a gig or ending up doing a gig and really not caring whether it's made money or not. You know, that, that's great. Well, let me play a track that you uh, released, uh, I think about 10 years back this now. Um, and I think you played all the instruments in this part from the bass. Uh, I've got uh, Killer in the Crowd. I've played everything on it except for the bass. It's Pure One Seven Point Eight FM, and you're listening to Fuzzbox Anarchy in SK. Keith Levine, of course, a guitar player, and well, he played everything uh, he could uh, and he wanted to in uh, in Pill. And of course, uh, uh, Pill fans were very excited uh, when he teamed up once again uh, with Jar Wobble, who now lives right here in Stockport, of course, and uh, did some uh, uh, some few dates with the Metal Box in Dub. You played a date in Manchester, didn't you? you played down at the Rube Lounge. Yeah, I played at Jay's Ruby Lounge, yeah, that's right, yeah. That, that was a really good gig, too, yeah. Are there any um, more plans to get on the road and do some more of that? When it comes to actually um, Metal Box and Dub, um, I'd say Metal Box is done, but I, I can't see me not doing more stuff with Wobble at some point, you know. I just think um, both of us want it to be a little bit more than it was, you know. This time around, we want it to be, we want to announce it, we certainly don't want to tour it. We we didn't tour this time, you know. And I, I don't know what Wobble's like about tours, but me, I'm, I've always been against them. Um, but I, I'm not against events. So I'm not against that. I want people to come and get their pill. I want people to come and get what they need, you know. And I feel like we could deliver it. So I'd be crazy to say I'm never going to play Wobble again. I, you know, I'd be happy to play with them again. Um, I just think it... it, it it would be great if it can just be one-off things. Uh, I'm certainly going to be taking um, what I do, which obviously is automatically pill, and whatever whatever else you want to call it. Um, I want to take it to Japan. I'm going to do some shows in uh, America. I'm certainly going to do some shows in England. Now, yeah. uh, you, you contributed a little bit to his uh, Psychic Life album that uh, uh, Wobble put together yeah. with, um, with Lone Lady before the, uh, the uh, Ying and Yang album came about that was released last year. Um, how do you feel sitting back uh, uh, and, uh, and listening to that? Do you think it's, it's, um, it's inevitable that people are going to compare it to uh, the, uh, the first three or four uh, Pill albums when you were last uh, sort of working together in the band there? And, and how do you feel it stands up? I, I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's an album that's got a lot of depth and a, a lot of different sides to it. You know, um, I, I can't care about how people compare it or what they think. I hope they like it, and if they don't, well, then they don't, you know. Um, there's not too much I can do about it, but I never do anything that I don't think is okay. What's your favourite track on Ying and Yang? 
um, back on the block. Right, OK. Well, thanks so much for your, your time. We'll play out with that, shall we? And, uh, yeah, what's a tune? It's been lovely talking to you, Keith. Uh, thank I, you, Paul. I feel like we could talk for an awful lot longer. <laughs> um, probably, yeah. We probably will. When I, you know, I might be in England soon, and I'll let you know I'm there, and, you know, I might even end up in Stockport, you know, seeing the white man himself. So, um, you know, maybe we should get together then or something. I'd love that, no. um, and it's uh, it's been great actually. The uh, reaction we've had from the stuff when we played the Yin and Yang album, and uh, from having yourself and uh, and Jar Wobble on the show, uh, we've had uh, tweets from uh, Japan and the States and all over the place, which uh, which personally I find uh, uh, great to think that people uh, are interested in the stuff that we're talking about here in Stockport across the world. Thanks so much for your time Thank today, you. Keith Levine. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thank you, mate. Cheers. Take care uh, of yourself. I hope to speak again. Okay. okay. All the best. Recorded for Fuzzbox on Pure 107.8 FM in Stockport back in 2013. That was the late, great Keith Levine. And incidentally, 2013 was also the year that Wilco Johnson was given a terminal cancer diagnosis. And you can hear him talking candidly about that and his remarkable recovery in Fuzzcast episode 2. As well as Keith Levine, Wilco, Jet Black and Terry Hall. Earlier this year, we also tragically lost Nicky Tesco from the members. He sent me a very kind message on social media after listening to our very first podcast with his bandmate, JC Carroll. It's very sad when we lose our musical heroes. We often feel a real connection to them, even if we've never met them. It's a reminder of our own mortality as well, of course, and how precious time is and to use it wisely. But also, there's a a real sense of loss because, in a way, their music has touched our lives in a way that most other art forms just can't. They also leave us with a lasting legacy, and that is their music, which we can enjoy and which will live on forever. So sympathies to the families of Keith, Wilco, Jet Black, Terry Hall, Nicky Tesco, It was a pleasure spending time with Keith and with Wilco. Thank you all for all the comments that you've left on uh, Twitter. You can follow us at Fuzzcast Podcasts. A lot of people sharing their memories about some of the artists we've been talking about today. And Fuzzcast will be back in the near future. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Paul Holloway. Take care of yourselves.